Want to learn how to see and share Jesus from all the scripture? Learn with us at the Christ Center and Clear Podcast. Welcome to the Christ Center and Clear Podcast. I'm Nate Aiken, your host. I have with me John Aiken, and this week we have Redberg the Lesser, Jason Redberg, pastor at Redeemer Bible Church in Minnetonka, uh, Minnesota. We've had you on before, and we are talking today, uh, continuing our series on tough texts. We're looking at the whole book of Nehemiah. Uh, I'll probably ask a question in a minute why we would even choose this one. Uh, but guys, thanks for jumping on the podcast. Great to be here. Good to be here. All right, Jason, let's start with you, man. You've preached through it. John has not. So how did you break down the book of Nehemiah? So when I went through it, uh, we were not going through a building program. It was not <laughs> a series of messages on leadership. Uh, it was actually a really interesting time in the life of our church. Uh, I had been here uh, about a year and a half. I was following uh, a really difficult season for the church, one that was marked by a pastoral disqualification. And so this uh, this series for us became an opportunity for us to look at uh, a great and majestic God who loves his people, who guides his people, who revives and restores his people. Uh, so that's sort of how we approached uh, the book as a display of God's sovereignty over human events and his faithfulness to his people. We did it in 15 sermons. Uh, so the very first sermon was an overview of Ezra and Nehemiah to show the connection between the two. That was called Our Great and Awesome God. And then what followed were 14 sermons, all from Nehemiah. Uh, most of those were a chapter at a time. In eight, I did a couple of sermons, and then at the end, I did two in chapter 10 before a summary, a closing sermon, including the book, with one sermon on chapters 11 through 13. Mm. Hey, John, why would we call this, like, why would we take the whole book of Nehemiah and say this is in the Tough Text series? It's a good question, and uh, Jason kind of... Um, you know, hinted at it in his first answer. So a lot of times the book of Nehemiah is used to do two things. One, to set up a building campaign or building program. You know, they had they had to rebuild Jerusalem, had to rebuild the wall. Uh, Ezra can be used in that way too, uh, with building, you know, rebuilding the temple. And so uh, it's been, I think, misused in the past by some preachers who want to use the the second building of the temple, the reconstruction of Jerusalem, and just go, again, go kind of straight from the text to their hearers without doing any biblical theological work, without certainly without pointing it to Christ. And um, and so that that misapplication, that misinterpretation of what's happening here is something that we would like to address. Two, Nehemiah is also often used, and I'm not saying any. I'm not saying this is wrong necessarily, but I would always want to, I would always want to found this on what Nehemiah is doing itself in the Bible, how it's pointing to Christ in the church, and it's it's to do just a series of principles of leadership, and that Nehemiah showed strong courageous leadership, and you want to show strong courageous leadership in your life or your church, 
your family. And again, not that any of those things are bad, um, but but that's not exactly what the purpose for which Nehemiah has been included in the canon. That's not why um, God inspired this book to be written. Jason, any comments you have there? Uh, there were a number of uh, issues that I wrestled with leading up to it, and that was whether to preach through Ezra and then through Nehemiah. And, you know, John hit on some of that. In the end, though, we just decided to do one introductory sermon. And even in that sermon, I kind of gave the scope of how the two books work together. I talked about some of the ways in which uh, Nehemiah in particular is misused. And I think that not only strips it of its wonderful theological significance, but it does exactly what John says. It plucks it out of the redemptive storyline of Scripture. And I think when you put it back in, there is there there are riches for us uh, in this, if we can understand how this progresses the story of redemption. Hey, give us then the the a brief, like somebody's in their car, they, they haven't read Nehemiah in a long while. Give us your Ezra Nehemiah kind of overview, if you can, just as far as where this fits in the, you know, the history of Israel, the narrative of itself, all, all that sort of thing. So let me give you a quick quote by Derek Kidner and then talk about how I uh, summarized this in the first sermon that I did. So Kidner uh, says this, he summarizes what brings us to the doorstep of Ezra chapter one. He writes, it was a death to make way for a life. A millennium before this, Israel had been transplanted to Egypt to emerge no longer a family, but a nation. Now her long night in Babylon was to mark another turning point so that she emerged no longer a kingdom, but a little flock with the makings of a church. This is the point at which the book of Ezra begins. So I said, the events recorded in Ezra and Nehemiah move us toward the great climax of human history, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the coming of his spirit, the birth of his church. So we don't want to isolate this study from the rest of Scripture. And then I talked about four movements in Ezra and Nehemiah. Movement number one, the return of a group of exiles and the rebuilding of the temple of God. Movement number two is the return of Ezra and the rebuilding of the people of God. Movement three is the return of Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the walls surrounding the city of God. Movement number four is the return of another group of exiles and the rebuilding of the people of God. And that takes us through the end of Nehemiah. Hmm. Good. John, anything you would add there as far as summary of the of the book? No, nothing I would um add in terms of summary, but but I do think, you know, as as he as Jason just pointed out, that like Ezra and Nehemiah really is a pair that goes together. And and the way that it's the way that it's functioning within the the biblical storyline, and we'll talk a lot more about this when we talk about Christ centered aspect of it and I think application. But um, there, there was a great article written years ago, and, and readers probably wouldn't be able to get a hold of it, but it was written by McConville, and it's called Ezra Nehemiah and the Fulfillment of Prophecy. And he's just, he's, he's showing how Ezra Nehemiah is, is in the storyline showing this fulfillment of prophecy, right? That the prophecy was of a new exodus, new temple, all these different things. And so that's happened. There, they're back in the land, they're rebuilding the temple, they're rebuilding the city, but things are not yet fully uh, characterizing that eschatological future that the Old Testament pro prophets had promised. 
And so, so McConville's really developing in Ezra Nehemiah this concept of already not yet, like that the prophecy has been completed, they're back in the land, but we don't yet see the fullness of what God has promised. And I think that's fruitful um, in terms of how this points to Christ, because there's things left, you know, un, unfulfilled, or at least that, they're, that we haven't seen the, the fullness of them, uh, and those are waiting for Christ. And also in terms of our application, that we are also living in an already not yet situation. And so I, I think his article has really been influential for me in terms of how I approach this book when I teach it. Jason, what was the title of your of your overview sermon again? The title was "Our Great and Awesome God." Did y'all so sing Michael wanting, W. Smith? Did y'all sing Michael W. Smith that week? Yeah, I I actually broke out in song during uh, the middle of that first sermon, and uh, it went well. There was not a dry eye in the place, <laughs> including your wife. Right when your solo, was, yeah, yeah, she may have left the auditorium crying, but <laughs> that's good. Jason, when you preached this, uh, you said this when you first got to to Redeemer. So, were your convictions on Christ-centered preaching as as kind of developed as they are now? And, and would you approach it differently now if you were preaching it? You know, I actually think this was in the midst of uh, when a lot of convictions about Christ-centered preaching were solidifying. So, looking back at the sermon manuscripts, it, I think it got stronger as I went through the book, which is what I would have expected because it was during that time that many of the convictions that I now hold uh, were were being uh, played out in the midst of my weekly preparation and then weekly sermons. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, some of the guys that were helpful in this, Derek Kidner was very helpful. Uh, Jim Hamilton was helpful. Um, and then just a number of different articles that I uh, stumbled upon would uh, kind of lead me to some of the Christ-centered connections I saw during this. Hey, John, we're going to get to Christ-centered connections in just a second, but any are there any uh, kind of controversial textual issues in Nehemiah that we, we need to bring up? None that I think would um, would bear mentioning, like in that in, in terms of just like general pastors and and lay people you know like there 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 are some that scholars quibble over but nothing that would affect uh in my mind just like just faithful christians reading the text and trying to figure out what it's talking about jason let's start then um kind of how did you kind of as as it progressed you said it got stronger but just talk to us about how you see um how it's pointing to christ i do want to come back when we come back to application i might ask some questions around leadership and building campaigns and things like that. But just at least initially, how, how did you point it to, to Christ? Yeah, so uh, all the way through, there is a sense of uh, God's covenant love being uh, undeniably extended to his people, carrying his people through this time of uh, restoration. Uh, their sin is at the forefront. Uh, it is not difficult in the text to find opportunities to talk about the people's sin and their failure, and yet God's unfailing love toward them, uh, that he has a plan for them, and that plan will be carried out. The people will be restored, and they will be restored 
uh, because of his grace and because of his love and because of his kindness, not because they do everything right. Uh, so as you move through Nehemiah, you see uh, the sense of God's work in them. And then you see the centrality of the word in God's work with his people. Uh, so when you come to chapter eight, the there are these glorious scenes that unfold. Uh, for instance, at the beginning of, of Nehemiah chapter eight, it says, and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And you see how the word of God does its work in the people of God. And uh, one of the things I said in chapter eight is uh, I said, if, if we're looking at this and we understand this to be a sovereign awakening that God is enacting on his people, this is what we see. The law of God reveals the character of God that exposes the people's sin and brings them to repentance. And so obviously there, uh, it is quite easy to make my way toward uh, presenting mm. the gospel clearly. So you're saying there was one single assembly? There was one assembly in a... one place. Yeah, at gotcha. one time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, John, now talk to us about how you, and when you work through Nehemiah, point, point to Christ. So one, again, is just doing that biblical theological work of setting it in its context. And so the so one, we do have a partial new exodus happening here. Um, and so this is the fulfillment of God's promise that they they weren't going to be in exile forever, that he was going to bring them back to the land, that that, that he I mean, this is all. This goes all the way back to Deuteronomy four and Deuteronomy twenty-eight. When all these things come upon you, you'll then you'll seek me, uh, search me with all your heart. I'm going to restore your fortune. I'm going to bring you back to your land. This is part of the dedication prayer of Solomon in First Kings eight. And so we're so we see a, a partial new Exodus, but we also see again that already not yet. So so I also, um, and I'll just explain this briefly. Like Daniel nine looms large in the background of. Ezra Nehemiah, because it's the 70 weeks promise. So 490 years, you know, and there's real complex text, but Gabriel is explaining to Daniel, like, here's what's going to happen. You're, you think we're at the end of 70 years. So you think it's time to go back into the land and that all of the promises of God will be fully and finally fulfilled, but it's actually going to be 70 times seven years and you, yes, you're going to go back into land. You're going to start to rebuild the city. Um, all of these different things are going to happen. But the like the sealing up of vision and prophecy, putting an end to transgression, like all of these things, he says, are not going to take place until the Messiah is cut off. So, mm -hmm. so the so they're living in already not yet. The the real culmination of the new Exodus is not going to be until the death and resurrection of the Messiah. And so, because of that, they're living in this in between time. And so, one. Yes, the initial fulfillment, just like in the same way we would preach to us, that we have 
all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus. We've been forgiven of our sins. We've been given the Spirit. Uh, we've been included in the family of God. You know, our inheritance is is secure in Christ, but we're not yet fully experiencing everything, right? That we're we're experiencing a foretaste of glory divine, but we're not yet experiencing everything. And so that 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 you know, kind of cliffhanger, so to speak, is pointing the reader beyond Ezra and Nehemiah to to something that's going to be accomplished in the future. And so that's that's one of the main ways that I um, that I point to Christ when I'm teaching through uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. This is one of those books that is not really picked up, referenced in the New Testament yet. Obviously, you 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 think we can still preach it Christocentrically. I think we have to preach it Christocentrically. Um, I mean, there's there's books like Esther that don't even mention God, but I it doesn't mean that you shouldn't preach God when you when yeah. you preach through Esther. Um, no. So I think we have to preach it uh, Christocentrically because the questions that are left unanswered by Ezra and Nehemiah are answered in Christ, and so we have yeah. to we can't since we live on the other side of Calvary we can't leave those unanswered in the same way that 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 those who would have taught it then wouldn't have left it unanswered because what they're what they're saying what they're showing them is look we have this initial fulfillment but there's this hope for the fulfillment in the future that that i mean like think about the what's happening in Ezra and Nehemiah they're back in the land they're rebuilding the temple they're rebuilding the the city but they're still ruled by foreigners okay they're not standing they don't have their own government they're still not keeping the torah they're still breaking sabbath they're still intermarrying with uh, with pagan peoples, all of these things are happening, and so while they're experiencing this initial fulfillment of what of what God had promised, the end of captivity, new hearts. Th- this is new covenant stuff. New hearts, spirit within you. You know, uh, new temple. All of that stuff is waiting for a, a, a final fulfillment in the future. And so you have to preach Christ. That's good. All right, let's talk application. Jason, I'll come to you first, and then John, back to you. Uh, and then it, it, as you talk about how you applied, again, broadly, because we're not hitting every sermon you have, we probably will do that someday in the future. Um, but even just think through, most of the time it's used as leadership principles, building campaigns. Did you hit any of that in your application? Uh, and then talk to us about how you uh, applied this book to your people. Yeah, I don't think it's wrong to pull out... Um, the wisdom of scripture. And mm-hmm. so I did at times talk about uh, Nehemiah as an example of a good and righteous leader, uh, especially the role of prayer in Nehemiah's life as he faced this massive task that God has put before him. You see in Nehemiah a, an utter dependence upon the Lord. Prayer is absolutely central to his life. I don't think it's wrong at all uh, to talk about uh, that as a as a means of application for your people, uh, that like Nehemiah, as we uh, consider all that God has called us to do and to be in our lives, that it should drive us to utter dependence upon the Lord, and we should be marked by prayer. So I think there's there are lessons like that that we can uh, glean from Nehemiah's life. I obviously think the centrality of the word in the leadership of God's people and the restoration of God's people is a lesson that we should uh, lean into. Uh, so even as we thought about it as, as our church, okay, what is it uh, that God is going to use to bring us back to health as a church? 
How's he going to bring a restored sense of unity, uh, a restored excitement about the future? What What is it that he's going to use? Do we have to come up with something? Uh, or can we rely on the sufficient word that he has given to us? And I think Nehemiah provides a great example, both Ezra and Nehemiah, of trusting the sufficiency of the word in a sense to mm. restore the people of God and to do the work of God uh, in his people. So I think there are a lot of lessons that we can glean, but I want to do that uh, appropriately. I want to do it from the text and I want to do it in a way that, that points us to, to Jesus mm. at the end of the day. Mm. John? Yeah, so a couple of ways that I would do application here. There's obvious, the, the ones that Jason's already mentioned, I mean, are Obviously, Nehemiah 8 and the dedication to the Word of God, the dedication to expounding the Word of God, how, how people need to hear it in a way, and then have it explained to them the way they can understand. Uh, there's ch- like children who can hear with understanding are there. So like, so the, the centrality of the Word is key. Just the, the idea of like certain sins that need to be repented of, whether that's uh, you know, being unequally yoked um, you know, or breaking the Sabbath in terms of like, we wouldn't. I wouldn't apply that in the same way uh, as I would back then, but just to to hit again in terms of the principle of application of of the need to have this rhythm of of work and rest in your life and, and those kinds of things. Um, I would hit on a bigger picture kind of thing um, that idea of already not yet that we are in the same way that I would preach and I am right now preaching through the Book of Numbers that they have been rescued from you know, slavery in Egypt, they, they have, they have, they've come out in the Exodus, but they're not yet in the promised land. And so that's going to come with all kinds of temptations and trials and tests of faith. Um, and the way that the people of Israel failed in the wilderness, now they're now failing in the promised land in Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, and so we are, First Corinthians 10 tells us that, that these things are written down for us. And that we're to be warned by what they did and to not be like them and to, to be faithful to the Lord. And so we just walk through what does it look like to be pilgrims who are not yet in our land. And then the last one, when it comes to the, the issue of building, okay, like the, what you see in Ezra and Nehemiah is the rebuilding of the kingdom. And, and in the Old Testament, it's a, it's, a, it's a brick and mortar, you know, type rebuilding. But biblical theologically, as you look in the New Testament, that's not what we're called to do. There's not there's not one place in the New Testament that commands us to build church buildings. I'm not saying it's wrong to do it. I'm not saying that I don't love all the buildings that that have housed the churches that I've pastored. Um, but we're not called we're not called to build brick and mortar. We are we are a temple made of living stones in Jesus Christ. The new temple is Jesus and His body. And so, what does it mean to build the the kingdom? To build the temple and the new covenant, it means to expand the church. It means the great commission. And so that's what I'm, you know, and that, that's where these principles, I want to ground these principles, like the whole, you know, I can't come down from the wall because I've set my hand to this task and I'm not going to be distracted by the critiques and everything like that's all good. That's awesome stuff. What that means is don't be distracted from the great commission. Um, and what we see in the Exodus, you see the plundering of the Egyptians uh, that they give over their gold. That's what's used to build the tabernacle. We see that here in the New Exodus, Ezra one. It's it's Cyrus telling the Persians and the pagans to give over of their money to the people of Israel so they can go rebuild the temple and, and then you know rebuild the city. 
And in the new covenant, it's Ephesians 4, Jesus plundering people Hmm. from Satan, giving gifted men to the church to build up the church so that we're able to minister to one another. So, So it's a growth in maturity as well as a growth in terms of numbers and people being added to the church. And so that's, that's how I would, that's how I go at this when I teach through Nehemiah. Jason. That was, that was great, John. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, I I don't really want to say that since he's my younger brother, three minutes younger than me. That was adequate. That was, that was very, very good. (laughs) Very helpful. So one of the, one of the things I was challenged with in preaching through this, and John has talked about this a lot is connecting application to uh, the contemporary things that my audience is facing, but doing that in a distinctly uh, biblical theological manner or redemptive manner. There is one point that I thought Jim Hamilton was particularly particularly helpful to me on, and that was the issue of opposition that Nehemiah faced. And here's a comment that Hamilton made that, again, I found helpful not just in sharing with my congregation, but in helping me think about how to apply Hmm. uh, the text to my congregation in a way that even the application is Christ-centered. He says this, as Christians, we want to see ourselves as uh, installments in the same pattern as God has put his favor upon us. In response to this, the seed of the serpent is enraged. They're gathering together against us, and consciously or not, they are trying to overthrow the king of the universe mm. and trying to do, trying to usurp his kingdom and trying to defeat his people. And this is why Christians across the ages have been persecuted. This is why the people of God across the Old Testament and New Testament are persecuted. And it's tremendously encouraging to identify yourself with the persecuted like mm. Nehemiah. Mm. I thought that was so instructive. And that's so fantastic. encouraging. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a good place to end because next week uh, we continue our series on tough passages in the Old Testament. We'll be looking at the subject of imprecatory prayers. Is it okay for a Christian to pray for the death or destruction of an enemy? Uh, in preparation for that, read Psalm 7 this week and then join us next time uh, again on the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast. Thank you for listening to the Christ Center and Clear podcast. If you have questions, topics, or texts that you'd like us to consider for future podcasts, please contact us at podcast at ChristCenteredAndClear.com. And please visit us at ChristCenteredAndClear.com for more resources that will help you see and share Jesus from all of Scripture. Scripture.